when you have a career criminal like myself ringing the alarm and saying, hey, this is a problem. It is an absolute dystopian environment. The drug dealers and the, the addicts and the homeless people, they have taken over this sector of the city. It looks apocalyptic almost, like something you see out of a movie. You've been criticizing the open drug scene. Can you tell us what you saw? I see children having to traverse through these open-air drug markets. People are actually injecting it into their neck. And when I see them, I actually let them know, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing this out in the open for? You know there's children around. And they look at me like I'm crazy. They've actually feel like they have the right to just be out there living like that. Some people have said we should put people in housing first. Do you think something like that would have worked for you? <laughs> Absolutely not. If they would have gave me just housing when I was in my addiction, I would have turned that actual housing into some type of drug house. It would have been, it would have been wild. My guest today is Richie Wynn, San Francisco resident and videographer. He was once a drug addict and labeled as a career criminal. But since then, he's turned his life around and has become an advocate for the homeless and San Francisco's inner city kids. He continues to take a stand for a change in city of San Francisco's approach to homelessness and drug addiction. This is by far one of the best interviews we have done on California Insider. They're basically ignoring the problem if not making it worse by giving drug addicts paraphernalia like needles, tinfoil, straw, pipes, Brillo. And then what does that do? It inflicts the rest of that madness onto the society. They all have to deal with this person that is half out of their mind on drugs. Why? Because the city wants to have what they call compassion. There's nothing compassionate about letting somebody uh, uh, stew in their addiction. There's nothing compassionate about that. This is Yamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Richie, it's great to have you on. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We want to talk to you about your city, San Francisco. Uh, you've been uh, filming what's going on in San Francisco. You actually used to be a drug dealer back in the day. Now, can you tell us what's going on in your city? I am a former drug uh, user, drug seller. Um, I did a stint in federal custody and when I came home back to San Francisco against everyone's um, uh, everyone like the judge the the district attorney the the probation officers the drug counselors they all warned me not to go back to San Francisco and to it, it's kind of like a thing they say in recovery is the people places and things they felt like if I went back to San Francisco I'd go back to my old ways but I was determined uh, not to do that. So when I came back to San Francisco, I started seeing things through a different lens. I started seeing it for what it really was. And I, it, and it was really like jarring to me. I, I really started feeling some type of way about it, particularly when I see children having to traverse through these open air drug markets and <clears throat> And that coupled with uh, me losing uh, my, my cousin to fentanyl poisoning uh, that same year really galvanized my stance on really trying to make a change in San Francisco uh, or, or at least bring, bringing the situation to light so the policymakers can make the change. I'm no politician. I'm not a police officer. I'm not anybody with any substantial amount of power except for the camera on my phone and my voice. Uh, other than that, I, I really don't have any other tools. So this is what I've tr tried to bring to the voters of San Francisco or the residents of San Francisco. And it's kind of now turned into uh, a little bit more of a political argument more than actually it actually trying to help people. And that's really what I'm trying to do is to get policy set in place or for have the to have the policymakers make laws that will actually help people and not debilitate them more. Now, what year was it that you came out of prison? So uh, I've only been out for two years, so it, it was <coughs> uh, 2020. I was released to the New Bridge uh, program, which is in Berkeley. Uh, it's like a behavior modification program that um, breaks you of uh, some of the bad behaviors that you that got you in jail or got you into your addiction in the first place. It is a abstinence-based program. It runs on the um, 
the AA and NA model, uh, like 12 step. <clears throat> uh, but it also has you do a lot of treatment work and stuff like that to really kind of understand why it is that you make these bad decisions in your life. Essentially addiction, right? The, the Correct, addiction. And, uh, and, and I mean, not just addiction, your crimin criminal mentality as well, uh, because it, it kind of couples itself, right? A lot of people commit crimes to feed their addiction. And in that sense, that's what I was doing. I was committing crimes to feed my addiction. And we see that I even now in San Francisco uh, with the, the theft uh, and then the, the market for these stolen goods, um, they fence them off and, and sell them to um, either drug dealers or they sell them to other people and get money for drugs, right? I mean, it, it, but my, <clears throat> my addiction led me to do, um, you know, to, to actually sell drugs. And um, so, and that's what eventually had got me arrested and it changed my life. I, I, I would say that, <clears throat> There's no one size fit all when it comes to recovery, but the majority of the people that I know that have perpetual sobriety have had some type of custodial sentence, right? It, it didn't just happen with, um, you know, a pat on the back and say, hey, here, take, take this pipe and take these needles like the harm reduction people do. Uh, you know, they, they don't really, people don't respond well when they're still full-fledged full in their addiction because their mind is so clouded that they're not really seeing things clearly. So when you remove a person from a situation and put them you know, in a place like jail or where they're restricted from drug access, then their mind begins to clear, their feelings start to come back, and that's the watershed moment that's, that recovery will work into, you know, uh, in my opinion. I mean, from my brother to my mother to my aunties, everybody I know that has gotten clean has gotten clean uh, through that, that direction. Well, was there a moment for you that you decided to, to stop using and you ch st started to think about changing? Was there, was there a moment for you? Absolutely. What was that moment like? Absolutely. So I was in federal custody um, at the uh, Northern uh, Holding Facility in Oakland, California. Uh, and I had just found out I was going to be getting a federal indictment for trafficking cocaine and the numbers that they were talking about giving me were substantial. It was uh, in the range of 151 months to 188 months, which is roughly between 12 and 15 years. So for me, that was like a really, I, I remember the day specifically in the cell and I had just gotten done talking to my lawyer and uh, they were like, well, they're charging you as a career criminal. This is um, a serious deal. Um, and I, I literally broke down. I broke down in my cell and I was just like, man, I don't know what to do. And my lawyer was like, well, try writing the judge because your sentencing should be coming up soon. So I tried to write the judge. And as I wrote the judge, my, my pencil just kept going and kept going and kept going. And it almost started to turn into a story which haphazardly turned into a book that I wrote in jail. Um, it hasn't been published yet. I'm still trying to work on that because, uh, you know, I have to transcribe it all from pencil to digital format, uh, which has <laughs> been quite the feat. But um, in that moment, it was like, man, I see this lifestyle that I've been living has not been, it has not been conducive to me or anybody around me, my community, my family. Uh, it's, it's been nothing but destruction and, and, and everybody has to suffer in the wake of that. So that's when I decided and I came solidified in my recovery and said, you know what? It doesn't matter what they do to me here. It doesn't matter how much time I get in, in prison. I'm going to stay clean and I'm going to, I'm going to do the best I can and make a living amends through this to, to help people. You know, that was, that was my, that was my goal. In, in, in that jail cell. So it was really emotional because you're in there by yourself because it was during COVID. So, you know, it, you're in the cell 23 hours a day by yourself. So your mind is just like, it's just, it's wild. You know, it, you can only self-loathe a lot in there. You really get down on yourself. And so to be able to do that, I, I, I wrote the book and, and, you know, processed the book and it helped me, it helped me, it helped me, it helped me process the, the situation I was in and helped me 
in, in that sense in my recovery. <clears throat> and how did you end up in that situation? Can you tell us the story? Yeah, so when the prosecutor labeled me a career criminal, I mean, he wasn't too far-fetched. I, I have been continuously getting in trouble for these offenses in the San Francisco, Greater Bay Area for, for quite some time. And it was always kind of like a little slap on the wrist because of the, the policies that are set in place and nothing was really implemented. I did two years in Delancey Street, which is another really hardcore drug treatment facility in San Francisco. I completed that. And even after that, I didn't really learn my lesson. I kind of went right back to, to breaking the law. And so it, it took this like really like hard, it took, it took this really like turn of events when I left there I went back to doing what I used to do uh, I easily relapsed and went back to <clears throat> selling cocaine and running the streets and <clears throat> eventually um, my bad behavior caught back up to me it was a New Year's Eve party and I invited all these people there there was cocaine everywhere and people were filming and then that film eventually made its way to the narcotic, uh, the narcotics agent's desk. And when it came across the desk, they were like, well, this guy is, you know, I mean, <clears throat> he's a career criminal. You know, he, this guy's been selling for quite some time. We know who he is. Uh, so they followed me for maybe three months. And then finally they apprehended me um, at a gas station and I went kicking and screaming, you know, I, <laughs> I tried to run from them. You know, in your addiction, you do wild things. I tried to run on one way, down a one way uh, uh, with oncoming cars coming at me. There was a whole foot pursuit. They tackled me. I mean, it was, it was pretty wild. And, you know, these are, these are the type of things that I, I, I look back in retrospect and I'm like, man, this is wild. I risked my life for these, this, this addiction and it didn't, it, it is, it's insanity, really. And what you see now, now fast forward to today. So, so when you got released from the jail, was it was a jail, right? Correct. Then you, you came back to San Francisco. They told you not to go, but you decided to go back, right? This is where you grew yeah. up, right? Yeah, I'm from San Francisco. I was born and raised there, uh, born at St. Luke's Hospital. A lot of people can't say that, you know. Uh, San Francisco natives are very rare. Uh, you know, they don't really, they haven't stuck around too long. A lot of them moved out of the city, uh, got them displaced through, um, you know, gentrification, if you want to call expensive. it that. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, 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 the price hike in rents. And, and, then, and then you can, you can, you know, dissect that too. I mean, it, the Twitter tax and all these things that the uh, cuts that they were given to the tech companies brought all the tech people there, which of course raised the rent and then now and it, you know a lot of those tech people have actually went to greener pastures and actually tried to leave san francisco so now we have a uh, uh, abundance of empty office space so san francisco is definitely in some trouble in that in that um sector right now if you ask me i'm not a real estate expert but when you see all this office space empty and you see all these storefronts closed up uh, it, it, I've never seen it like this before. And so, so that is, when I did come back to San Francisco, that was, was very, really shocking to me. A lot of the places that were staples in San Francisco, Dottie's Cafe, some of these other places I used to go to to eat, um, Viva La Tarte, these little places that were mom and pop places, they're shut down now because of the COVID thing, because of the, the lack of tourism and, and the high rate of crime, right? And now what about the drug scene. You have been criticizing the drug, open drug scene. Can you tell us what you saw? Was it different from before? Definitely. So in 2016 was the first time I heard the term fentanyl. Somebody was trying to buy some heroin and uh, they were like, well, we could go over here and get the stuff this guy is calling China white, but I know it's not China white. It's actually fentanyl. And the person I was doing business with was like, no, no, let's not get that. I want actual heroin. That was the first time I ever heard it. And then as time progressed, you just kept hearing the term more and more. And now I go to jail and I come home and now it's basically the only drug out there as far as opiate. I, I don't see really anybody like actually using actual heroin anymore. It's wow. mainly just fentanyl. And what's the impact of it? How do the streets look? 
So fentanyl, um, I've never actually used it, but the effects seem to be a lot worse. The death rate obviously is sky high, right? Probably more overdoses on that in the last couple of years than probably any other drug. It really makes people lose their 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 shame and their inhibitions. They are just kind of sprawled out on the streets everywhere. They are nodded, folded over, nodding meaning kind of like falling asleep almost, uh, but they're almost falling asleep standing up. It's a very strange sight to see. It's it's kind of, it's, it, they smoke it, right? So they're smoking it and they're shooting it. Either you can you can smoke it or shoot it, uh, injectable, right? So uh, it's a lot of tinfoil, people smoking tinfoil off the straws, or they're injecting it uh, into their arms. If you see some of my videos on Twitter, you'll see that um, people are actually injecting it into their neck uh, because their veins have now collapsed and they don't have anywhere else to inject these right. uh, drugs at. It's a very nasty drug, and it's, it's a, in my opinion, it's poison. Um, People have died, like my cousin, Robert Davalos, God rest his soul, he passed away um, in 2021. He, he passed away from a fentanyl poisoning. Now I call it a fentanyl poisoning because what he took was a pill and he thought he was taking like a Percocet, but in actuality, it was laced with fentanyl and uh, it, it took his life. And you know, me and my family are still reeling really hard from that. Uh, we, we, my, my auntie, um, she's so heartbroken over it. Um, and, and it just kills me every day, man. But that was my little cousin and it, and, and that's where I really feel like it's just so unfair about this drug. And I just really want it eradicated off the streets because at the end of the day, you don't take, if I were, if I were to say, okay, I want a, a drink of water, right? I want water and I take a sip of that water and it kills me, that's not, that's, not, that's, not, that's not what you intended to do when you drank that water. You didn't intend to die, right? A lot of people are getting, um, getting this drug and it's, it's unbeknownst to them, it's gonna kill them. And it's, it's, not, it's not fair, right? It's not fair. If you're, if you, if I, do I think San Francisco will be a drug-free utopia? Absolutely not. But if we can at least get rid of this fentanyl situation, I think the streets will be a lot better. We're sorry about your loss. Thank you. And in terms of what's happening now in the streets of San Francisco, there's a lot more drug sale or is it more in the open? Um, it's definitely m more drug sales. It's really more in, in the open. It's, uh, it, it, you know, the Tenderloin used to always used to be a very um, hot, area for open-air drug markets, right? It was notorious for that. But what I've seen is that it's actually spilled over now to the other side of market into the Soma district. And like I said, where I filmed the video of the children getting off the bus stop, that's on 8th and Mission. I mean, Mission Street is a main corridor for the city. I mean, it's Mission and Market. Those are the two main corridors for San Francisco. And when you have one of the uh, major uh, intersections like that being hijacked by drug users and and uh, drug dealers I mean you really have a problem on your hands you know it, it, you've let it get out of control well, I mean not to just say when you have a career criminal like myself bringing <laughs> the alarm and saying hey this is a problem right but then on the other end you have career politicians you know like Hillary Ronan or Dean Patterson or, you know, London Breed, and they're basically ignoring the problem, if not making it worse by funding the Department of Health, that, which in return is giving drug addicts paraphernalia like needles, tinfoil, straw, pipes, Brillo. I mean, you name it, they give you anything that you ask for that, that will help you ingest the drug. And, and when, when we have government entities that are like that doing that, you have to wonder, there has to be some type of profit that these people are raking in or some type of, there's something going on there. If I'm saying that it's, it's too wild and these politicians who have not lived this lifestyle at all uh, are not calling it out like this is wild, then you definitely, there's something amiss there. There's some type so of disconnect. What do you think is going to happen with these policies? What do you think? 
Uh, I think, honestly, similar to what you described earlier about the issue that um, was happening with this company. Epoch Times, yeah. Yeah, with this company and how people were ignoring, the media was ignoring the issue. The persecution in China. Yeah, yeah, the persecution in China. The way people were ignoring that, it's the same. They're, they're ignoring this, this phenomenon that's going on in San Francisco. And if you go through Civic Center at night, and I, I, I challenge any one of the news organizations in San Francisco to go down to Civic Center at nighttime and go down there with their camera crew. Not one of them have done it. I, not Cron 4, not <clears throat> ABC Eyewitness News, not uh, KTVU Channel 2 News. I haven't seen any of them go down there with the camera and film at Civic Center at nighttime. It is an absolute dystopian environment down there that these people have, these people, when I mean these people, I mean the drug dealers and the, the addicts and the homeless people, they have taken over this sector of the city to where it looks so crazy. It looks apocalyptic almost, like something you see out of a movie. And um, I have a hard time going down there and actually filming myself because I feel uneasy about doing it. Um, it, it that's how bad it is down there. Um, but I feel as though because the, the, because of the politicians and the, the policies that they've stood behind, like Gavin Newsom and all these other individuals, these high-powered politicians, they've stood by some of these, these policies, like Prop, Proposition 47, like the sanctuary law, like, these, <clears throat> like the harm reduction uh, uh, um, model. They've stood behind these policies that they've set in place, and I don't feel like they've done it out of, out of a place of malice or being nefarious, but what I feel like has happened is that the policies have gotten away from them, and, and we're seeing a negative impact from them policies, and instead of them saying, hey, let's go back to the drawing board, let's, let's you know, try to tr go back to what was working a little bit better, right, which was a little bit of law and order, a little bit of, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, a little bit more of the old-fashioned recovery, right, go back to mandatory treatment, go back to those type of models that, that work, that started Delancey Street. All these, all these politicians, they love Delancey Street. That was a great, it's a great program. It's an abstinence-based program. You don't get to take any uh, uh, drug supplements there, nothing, right? And, and it's worked. It's changed a lot of people's lives. And this is the, these, are the, these are the people that were on the forefront of recovery, the Newbridge program. These people were on the forefront of recovery. And now you have these doctors and these nonprofits getting paid to uh, throw out some, some uh, their opinion, right, about recovery, you guys don't know the first thing about recovery. What you're trying to do is sell the next drug. You're trying to sell the next Narcan. You're trying to sell the next Suboxone. You're trying to sell the next Methadone. You're trying to uh, fund the next pharmaceutical thing. You can't pharmaceutical your way out of this. It's, you can't combat drugs with another drug. Now, if, now, my parents were on methadone my whole childhood, and they, my dad died on methadone. He was stuck on it, right? I mean, you, you can't do that. It doesn't work like that. If you give somebody some type of medical treatment like that to get them, to wean them off of their addiction, it has to be on a detox status. It can't be on a maintenance status. They can't be on that for the rest of their life. They have to slowly, they should have to slowly detox off of it and start living life on life's terms. That's what they need to start doing. And because these people, like the politicians, have now backed some of these other strategies i feel like for one uh, they're trying to reinvent the wheel it doesn't you know you're everyone's trying to always come up with the, the new thing right new thing is this safe injection sites can you tell us more about them you can go there and get needles right is that correct so right now as it stands there is a location on sixth street where you can go in there and get just about any piece of paraphernalia that you that you can ask for now london breed opened something called the lincoln center that was in civic center and it was a safe consumption site where people were actually using drugs there. And when they were using drugs there, then they'd have medical personnel on standby to basically revive these people. So there you get to this point to where what you're doing now is just sweeping the problem under the rug and facilitating these addicts using. 
right? You're, that's basically, in essence, what these, these safe consumption sites are going to be. That's what they're trying to come up with. Even though it's against federal law, it's against state law, the city still is pushing for this. They're still pushing for this. And what I say to this safe consumption site, uh, you know, I've talked to a couple of the, the um, San Francisco Board of Supervisors about it. Uh, Matt Dorsey, he's actually my neighbor. I've talked to him about it. Uh, Hillary Ronan, I actually had a pretty in-depth uh, phone conversation with her about it. And in essence, what they want to do is have these medical personnel there at this scene, have somebody safely inject fentanyl, which is an oxymoron because there's no way to safely inject a street drug that is that is being manufactured in another country that has no regulation and nothing like that. So there's no way to safely inject that. But we'll let them use that title. I call them unsafe consumption sites. They're going to have them use the drugs there. And then if they if the the addict or the person individual that is using the drug looks like they might be going into a overdose, they're going to revive them using Narcan or they will revive them by just hooking up oxygen to the to them. What is that? You're basically letting people live in a vegetative state. It's 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 a form of it's a form of bondage, really. And 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 I'm so against these safe consumption sites. I can't say it anymore because not only are they facilitating them using drugs now when that person decides to leave the safe consumption site. Right. They're going to have to leave the safe consumption site when they leave. They're going to be inebriated out of their mind uh, on this substance. And then they're gonna be in psychosis. And then what does that do? It inflicts the rest of that madness onto the society. The kids, our property, the cars, the businesses. They all have to deal with this person that is half out of their mind on drugs. Why? Because the city wants to have what they call compassion. There's nothing compassionate about letting somebody uh, uh, stew in their addiction. There's nothing compassionate about that. They think they think that meeting a person halfway when they're still on drugs, yeah, you're gonna let them use drugs here, and then while they're high, I'm they're gonna try to counsel them and talk to them, talk them into recovery. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. People don't make sound decisions for themselves when they are in their addiction. It doesn't work like that. So you know, so I feel like the the the. The politicians are just digging themselves deeper and deeper. They're letting their political pride stand in their way. Instead of saying, hey, these policies aren't working, we're going to backtrack, they're just digging deeper into it. And, and that's, that's my opinion. I really think that they need to just cut some of these, these programs off. It's not working. So some people have said, you know, we should put people in housing first and then deal with their addiction. And, or, or this model, this harm reduction model is like, let's... Let's just become friends with them, put them in. Do you think something like that would have worked for you? <laughs> Absolutely not. If they would have gave me just housing uh, uh, when I was in my addiction, I would have turned that actual housing into what they call a trap or like a like some type of drug house. It would have been it would have been wild that you can't focus on on housing first. Homelessness is a byproduct, in my opinion, of addiction. You've burned all your bridges and your support system and your addiction has taken over your life to where you are, you can't manage your own life. So you end up on the street. So addiction is not a byproduct of homelessness. You really rarely hear somebody say, yeah, you know, I lost my job. I became homeless. And then I started using fentanyl. That is how that process works. It doesn't work like that. It really very rare. And I, I would have to say, Actually, the opposite. It never really happens like that. And I'm not just landing just on fentanyl. It could be any whatever drug, fill in the blank, right? Alcohol, uh, methamphetamine, crack cocaine, any of those are usually the cause of this homelessness. That coupled with, obviously, some type of mental illness. Some of these individuals are dealing with a severe mental illness. And, you know, some family members can't support somebody with a mental illness as well as other families can either. So, you know, those those people uh, are the most vulnerable. Right. And, and, and since they're the most vulnerable, you have these drug dealers that I would say a, a, about 80 percent of the drug dealers on the on the streets of San Francisco right now are undocumented or some type of um, uh, from another country. And they are just preying on these people. 
They are preying on these people that have mental illness and we're allowing it to happen. We are funding this really destructive ecosystem of drug use. We're, we're funding it by giving the addicts GA. You're giving them general assistance, right? You're giving them general assistance. You're giving them free money and then they're using that money Every you should see the the corners when that money hits the EBT card. When the money gets downloaded onto that EBT card on the first or the third or whatever it is, that cor those corners are just so that's swarming. the money that's given to the homeless. Is that correct? Correct. They're, I mean, it's given to other people too, just not the homeless. It's given to struggling families and people that are uh, that that may actually need it, right? But they're giving it to the homeless people and and to the drug addicts, um, <clears throat> all in the same. Uh, just so just to go back to the housing question, uh, do I believe that people need help with housing? Absolutely. But do I feel like they should have to meet a certain criteria to get that help? If you want to get help with housing, then you should have to pee clean. You should have to pee test clean to keep that funding coming in to get that help. Right. To get this GA, you have to prove that you're not on drugs. But we're not going to get my, my tax money. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, isn't much. You know, I just started working. It's not, you know, I'm not like but but for for the rest of society, our tax money should not have to go to fund people's drug habits. That's that's so that it's just not I, I, I don't feel like the average tax paying American wants that. I, I don't think the average San Francisco taxpayer wants that. I don't think a lot of them even really know what's going on. When I filmed a lot of the stuff that I that I documented about the harm reduction, about them giving these needles out and giving this paraphernalia out all from the Department of Health, which I'm not a professional about where this money is coming from, but uh, I know it's sanctioned by the Department of Health, the San Francisco Department of Health, and that's a government ent entity that's basically getting paid by us in actuality, right? And some type of tax money is f funding that, right? The money isn't just coming out of nowhere. So, so when you think about that, and when these other people were, you know, enlightened to that and they, they seen the videos that I made, they were like, whoa, I, I, I don't agree with this. I don't like this. This is crazy. My, my, my. So the money is straight going into drugs. Yeah, it's going right. You're funding yeah, the drug yeah, consumption. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're funding it with your tax money. And, and that's because we voted the way we did and these people got into office or whatever and they've implemented these, these ideologies that, that they think might actually be helping at this point i feel like they're actually making the situation worse but like i said i'm not right i'm not left i'm just a san francisco resident that sees this city in decay and i just really want to see it do better did you get criticized you got criticized for your videos right is that correct yeah i've been criticized with the videos of being insensitive um and 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 whatnot for me i confront people I'm not just, I won't sit down with the attic and say, well, how'd you get here and, and, and that stuff. I'm, I'm actually, when I, when I see them, I actually let them know, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing this out in the open for? You know, there's children around. You know, people pay money to live in this building here. You're just out in front of their, their residence like that, you know, using drugs. And I tell them, like, have you no shame, right? That's like a, that's like a saying. Have you no shame anymore? Like, it's gotten to the point to where this ideology behind harm reduction has made these people be so acceptance, so accepting of their addiction that they feel like they don't have to hide it anymore, that they can just be out in the open and, and you know, they look at me like I'm crazy. When I ask them, hey, what are you doing shooting up right here? Why are you sticking the vein in your pelvic area right here in front of my building that I pay rent in? What, what, why are you doing that here, you know? And they look at me like I'm crazy because that's how emboldened these policies have made the, the addicts. They've actually feel like they have the right to just be out there living like that and exposing children to this and exposing the taxpayers and, and all the other citizens of San Francisco to this because of this rhetoric that the, the harm reduction coalition is putting out, the, the homeless coalition is putting out, and it's really... It's just it's, it's kind of disgusting if you think about it, because these nonprofits are inflating their numbers. Right. When I went into uh, into the harm reduction site 
with Savannah Hernandez. I went, we, we did like a little undercover video around the area. I went into the, in, right before I went in there, I, I spoke to the camera. I said, hey, I'm going to go in there and see where I can come out there, uh, out with. I came out with a big box of 300 hypodermic needles and two bags of a lot of other paraphernalia stuff, right? And so in that moment, you think like, okay, well, this nonprofit is boasting, I don't know, I don't know the exact numbers, but they're boasting maybe, oh, we passed it out three million clean needles and stopped the transmission of deadly diseases out here on the streets of San Francisco. Well, no, not actually. What you did was you passed out three million needles. Well, half of them ended up in the trash can or in the gutters and because the, the homeless people just lose them or they scatter them around and you're inflating your numbers. Did they ask you about, hey, um, here are the needles, but we can help you with recovery? No, so that was the most shocking part. After I got done with, the, with everything, I had the two bags in my hand and I looked the guy in the eye and said, you know what, I'm just really struggling right now to stay clean. Where, where can I go get clean at? Wow. And the guy said, uh, I don't know, maybe talk to her. And so there was another lady, I didn't get her name, but uh, she works also for the harm reduction site. And I said, hey, is there any type of rehab or something I can get into tonight? I, I need to get into, oh, well, you, uh, uh, not really sure if you go down, like no, like solid answer. And which was so amazing to me because within a one block radius around that harm reduction site, you have the Minna Hotel, you have the Billy Holiday Navigation Center, and then you have Hospitality House right down the street from there. You have these places in the vicinity, wow. but they're not even directing people there because it's a money grab. It's these people are not interested in recovery. They're trying to just pass out these these utensils and keep their funding coming. It's 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 so apparent what's happening. It's like a, a for-profit prison that says they're trying to re rehabilitate people. No, they're not. They want people in the prisons, right? So they can keep uh, making products and, and uh, continue, uh, continuously help their shareholders or, or whatever it is. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's so transparent if you just look hard enough. You can look right through it, right? So I just, um, my, in my opinion, we need to kind of go back to the old fashioned, hey, you, you get caught with some paraphernalia or a controlled substance, or if you're using in public, you need at least something at like a 90 day flash, a 90 day flash in jail, right? And, and to be held in custodial sentence for 90 days. And then there, that's where the resources need to be ramped up. You go, once they are in custody and they start getting a clear head, that's where the resources need to start getting ramped up. Hey, come visit them in the jail cell or, or in the jail and say, hey, we got this program for you. Do you want to change your life? Do you want to make the right decision? Here, we have all these services for you and to, to go into the right step, right? That's where the watershed moment, when people's feelings start coming back, when they're, they're, they're more cognizant of what they're doing. Right. That's when it happens. It doesn't happen on the streets. You can't talk to somebody when they still have the needle dangling out of their arm and say, hey, do you want to get clean? Of course they don't want to get clean. They're in the midst of their addiction. They're in a fog. Right. Were you surprised by when you heard that, that there is no help? How, how did you feel about that when they told you? Man, I felt I, I, I felt I felt <laughs> I felt enraged. I was like I felt really like this is a spit in the face. This is a spit into the face to all the people that have gotten clean through Narcotics Anonymous, through Alcoholics Anonymous. There's millions and millions of people that have gotten clean using those services. And for you to negate those services and negate that, that, that mode of recovery is so disrespectful. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, harm reduction, that's something that kind of actually, from my understanding, started in the 80s. It was like a needle exchange, right, for people to stop, so people could use clean needles so they wouldn't be transmitting, transmitting mm -hmm. uh, HIV, yeah, yeah. right? So, so at the end of the day, I under, okay, that's, that's one model, but you can't just justify giving out 300 needles to somebody, right? and think that they're gonna get clean or something like that. It doesn't work like that. And it's also really unfair to the taxpayers and the other people, right? I mean, you have people that are on my Twitter that say, oh, you know, my auntie has diabetes. She can't even get needles. But we're giving them free to drug addicts? That doesn't make sense. 
it's it's really just uh, it, it's 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 a real head scratcher. Now, when you talk to the politicians uh, that don't agree with you, um, how does that conversation go? Um, none of them will respond to me. Hardly any of them will respond to me openly on Twitter, like Dean Patterson or uh, Scott Wiener or any of those individuals. They won't. They won't respond to me uh, about anything of that nature. Um, and and I welcome them to a debate anytime about it. You know, because I've lived this. They just read about it in a book. I've lived this, and I really can you know enlighten them about some stuff. I talked to, when I talked to Hillary Ronan. She was actually she. She was respectful. She talked to me about it. She was uh, she was insightful because I really didn't know what exactly they were going to do in these safe injection sites. I was like, OK, well, if you're going to let them use there, then that's going to be a problem because a lot of these people don't like being revived. As crazy as that sounds, I've revived people off of Narcan before. And when you revive them, they wake up out of the thing and they're mad because they don't know that they almost died. They really don't know. Maybe if they seen a video of it, you know, and then maybe they're like, oh, wow, I did almost die, right? But a lot of time in their consciousness, they don't think that they died. They think that they were just in a really good high. So, so if you tell people, okay, we'll come to this safe injection site, and if you even look like you're going to start, like, passing out, they're going to be hitting you with Narcan. A lot of people are, are not going to want to go there. I mean, these people can barely leave a couple feet from the dope man, right? You see them, you know, they get their dope and they don't even, they go a couple steps and then they just start using it. They can't wait to get their fix, right? So you can't, uh, uh, can't expect them to wanna get their drugs and then go to a safe injection site, wait in line. Really all that's gonna turn into is them to go there to get more free stuff. They're going to be giving out probably waters and food there as well and, and, you know, probably let them wash their clothes there. So I feel like people will actually go there. Some of the ones that are a little bit more, um, you know, um, still have some of their faculties left, right? Some of their, um, their mind left. A lot of, like I said, there's, there's different totalities or different levels of people that are out there using, right? There's the people that are full blown, like have that mental illness coupled with the addiction, like a dual diagnosis type of situation where they are so like just out of it that they don't wash their clothes. They don't ca take care of their bodies. They're have abscesses and sores and they're, you know, and then you have some of the addicts that are, you know, out there that are homeless, that are um, still have some of their, you know, some of their mind right in there. Those are usually the ones that are committing a lot of crime, right? Because they're, they're a little bit more slick and cunning and they'll come and take the free services and take all this stuff and then be on the back end like, oh, I'm not going to get clean. I'm just playing these people. I'm just telling them what they want to hear. I'm placating them, right? That's, and that's, that's the truth of it. A lot of these uh, people that are, the, uh, <clears throat> are in the criminal mentality of it, that are, that are in their addiction, they're very, very cunning, you know? They're very um, slick, if you will. Now, Richie, why are you vocal about this? Because it seems you're not in the nonprofit field. You just came back. Why did you become vocal about this? Well, there's, I mean, it, it's, it's a multitude of different reasons why I became vocal about it. Uh, one, obviously, like I said, I started seeing the correlation between um, the policies that are set in place into uh, what happens in real life, right? I never really felt like the government or anything like that. I always kind of lived outside of that realm, right? But I, as I noticed, and I wrote my book, I noticed how a lot of things happen and and it's all be behind a lot of the policies that are happening through the government, right? For instance, in my book, I write about how somebody OD'd uh, in, in my father's house. Um, uh, a lady uh, had OD'd there. And when me and my father found her in the bathroom, she was slumped over the bathtub, um, had defecated over herself. She still had a needle in her arm. And it was very traumatic for me. It was very traumatic for me. I can still remember the <coughs> how vivid it was. It was really bad. Do you want some water? It was really bad. It was really bad seeing her like that at such a young age. And when my father finally had got the courage to call the ambulance, they came, drug the body out, and then the homicide detectives came in and the cops came in. They took me, separated me from my father, and started 
asking me what happened what happened you know did your what your dad do like kind of insinuating that my dad had something to do with her death and as a kid i like broke down i was crying it was a very traumatic experience for me right and when they when I told them what happened that the lady was making a wheezing sound all 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 night she got up in the morning went into the bathroom and then we heard a thud on the wall and we opened the door and she was dead you know they they basically let left me alone but I was always taught not to talk to the police too though so it was really hard for me that was like it was like a a a, um, a dichotomy going on in my head right as a child like that I was only maybe like 10 years old so it was really hard for me to 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 you know, process that. But when they left and drug the body out, I don't know if anybody's ever had a, uh, anybody that's had a dead body in their house and, and, and leave, you're left to clean that up. And my dad in, the, in, the, in that point in his life was deep in his addiction and he had missed his methadone or whatever it was. He had to go out and get well and, and, get, and get, get well. So he left and told me to clean it up. And I was stuck cleaning all that stuff up. And it was, you know, I, I didn't know the first thing about cleaning up humanly bodily waste like that. It was, it was very, um, it was, it was disgusting. I, I write about it more in my book, but it was, it was really, it was really hard for me. And, and then you think about it, like these cops came in and they did not, they didn't have me talk to a social worker. They didn't have me talk to a CPS worker. Somebody just OD'd in this house. Obviously, the, the atmosphere in that house was not safe. It wasn't conducive to my childhood. And you guys left me there. You left me there in that, in that, in that cesspool. And then you wonder why people end up like this, right? It's because you guys don't have the safeguards, the social safeguards to, to help these kids. There's a kid out there right now that's in San Francisco. I see him every night. I see him every night. He's out there with his parents. And, and his, his dad sells drugs. And he's out there every night. And it just breaks my heart, man. It breaks my heart to see him. Because that was me, right? That was me stuck in that, in that environment. And it kills me to see that the people that are supposed to keep this kid safe are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that's why I've become so vocal about it, you know? <clears throat> That's why I become so vocal about it. It's really hard for me. And like the day that I filmed, the kids getting off the bus, off the 14 mission. I was so enraged. I brought myself to tears and I was just like, man, when are they gonna do something about this? This is crazy. These kids, these urban kids, these urban kids should not have to see this. You know, yeah, I get it. I grew up in the city too. You know, I grew up in the city too, but it was nothing like it is today. I wouldn't want to raise my child in San Francisco. You know, God willing, I'm able to have a child soon, but I, I never would want to raise my kid in that environment. I wouldn't want to send him to the bus stop to go to school. That's not okay. The people that are making these policies to let these homeless people live on the streets and let them use drugs in the open, their kids aren't seeing this. Their and their kids aren't being exposed to this. So why are you exposing everybody else's kids to this? It's crazy. The judge that makes the order, right? Oh, homeless people can, uh, uh, you know, live out here and, and you can't remove their tents. You know, you can just have them set up, you know, anywhere they want and you can't remove the tents. You can't, uh, you know, the, the, the police chief and the, 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 the district attorney that are making this decision to say, well, we're not going to arrest the drug users, right? We're not going to arrest them and try to help them because that's really in actuality what you're doing. Even us criminals will say it when, when we're in jail. Somebody will come off the streets, right? And, and what we, the, you have what they call a frequent flyer, right? It's somebody that comes in and out of jail all the time. Throughout my, my, my 36 months I stayed in federal custody in Santa Rita, we seen, uh, I seen one individual come back almost four times. He came in and out, in and out. And every time he looked worse, every time. And then he gets into jail, he has what they call three hots in a cot, right? Three meals a day, he's getting his sleep back, he gets back, he gets his weight back up, he goes back out into the streets, and then he comes back again, and he's like this. He's all sucked up and half dying. And we all joked, joke, joke to these type of individuals, and we're like, man, they saved you, they saved you. 
If the if the force intervention was not there, if the police did not take you off the streets, you would have probably died out there, right? I mean, that's how serious this addiction is, and people just don't see it for that, man. And the politicians don't see it for that because, uh, you know, God bless their bleeding heart, you know, uh, uh, about this this thing. But really, their their efforts are misplaced, and and they some of these a lot. I'd say uh, a good majority of these people need a little bit of more you know, good old fashioned tough love, you know, hey, this is what you need to do. This is, this is, this is how you're going to get clean. It's like training wheels, right? You put them on training wheels. Well, hey, we're forcing you to be here right now in this rehab. But then like in Delancey Street, they have a term, it's called act as if. You act as if you want to be clean. You act as if you want to be a decent person. You act as if it might not be internal yet. But when you act as if you want that, it grows on you, right? It grows on you, and then they take off the train wheels. Okay, you're all, all out of the rehab. You're now maybe in a halfway house. Maybe you're, you know, in a, a transitional housing. Okay, now you're off probation. Well, look at you go. You're doing it all by yourself now. You're swimming, you know, or I mean, you're you're riding your bike with no train wheels, right? It's 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 really kind of simple if you look at it like that. It's like a step down process, right? That's what's worked for me. I just worked for thousands of other million if not millions of other ex-convicts and ex-drug addicts it's you know you don't just go from you know um using one day and clean the next because some counselor came and talked to you while they gave you some needles and tinfoil right now, Richie, you're the hope for these kids in San Francisco. <laughs> and uh, so don't put that pressure on me. That's <laughs> a lot of pressure. <laughs> Richie Wynn, it was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you. Thank you. You made a T-shirt for your cousin. Can you show us the T-shirt? Yeah, so this is my cousin, Robert Davalos. God rest his soul. Um, you know, he died from fentanyl poisoning. Um, and, you know, me and my family, we've been struggling with it ever since. And so I'm just asking for any politician that will listen or any lawmaker that will listen, please, let's help get fentanyl off the street because this stuff is killing our family members and it's not right. Please help us out. Thank you. If you like the show and our content, you should go to insiderca.com and sign up to our newsletter because we never know what can happen with social media and other platforms in terms of distributing our content. If you'd like to come on the show and be an insider, you can reach out to us at cainsider at epochtimesca.com. Again, it's cainsider at epochtimesca.com. We'd love to have you on the show to tell us what's going on in your field in California.